How do you think life around here will change in the next two years? If you had to make a prediction. To be honest, <laughs> around here, I feel that it's going to start losing certain cultures and race um, around here. Because I'm seeing that there's a lot of, like, especially of people um, of color, are being more pushed out of the city of Boston. Yeah. So I feel that the city of Boston is going to lose that part of the culture that they had. Because, um, as I said, you start to see they are being pushed out more to other parts of the state. What's pushing them out? A few things is new um, buildings, especially housing buildings, and this increase in prices yeah. for it. So like rent or just buying a house, it's a lot more expensive than what it used to be. So it's, um, it's kind of like hurting them so that now they have to find somewhere else where it's cheaper and probably somewhere else where they're not familiar with. And so they get to lose also a part of them, which is living in Boston and having that culture. Previously in Greater Boston. What's your plan here exactly? Gonna team up with Gemma, a couple others. We'll operate out of their real home. Oh, and you're under arrest. What? You have the right to not talk and all that jazz. <laughs> you thought this would be so easy, didn't you? But when I looked into that ball, I could see myself clearly again. And I know who has it now. And I'm going to get it back. Braintree. Peabody. The Underground. Avril. Lowell. Part 2. In Taunton, Thomas arrives at Compass Storage to visit his orrery. He lifts up the door and pauses a moment in awe of his beautiful device, as he does every time. Then he tinkers with the controls, adjusts settings, accounts for dates and calendar discrepancies. He sets the machine in motion. Hmm. See Venus eclipses Mercury. A tertiary conjunction of the inner planets in concert with a conjunction of Jupiter's moons. Pluto cuts an orbit interior to Neptune. A new comet appears. 
traces a sine wave around Uranus and Saturn, then collides with Enceladus, raising an enormous eruption of dust and ash. The crowd goes wild. With the opening of Braintree Park and Ride Rooftop Stadium, he has found a new job, a whole new vocation, really, and he's eager for celestial guidance as he embarks on this new path. Oh, this is a lot. Okay, this seems at least momentous. But let's see what Third Sight Media's Ori for Beginners has to say. Conjunction outer planets, no inner planets. There we are. Novel Comet Waveform Path, page 154. Okay. Calypso, uh, what do we have? A trial awaits. Well, that's not specific at all. A trial. There's always a trial. That's all life is. A series of trials. Maybe I missed a detail. Did I... Did I account for Europa? Thomas resumes his tinkering. Looking for nuances and revelations. Continuing to pursue knowledge of what is to come. Undisclosed location, Isaiah Powell is composing a letter. He uses code names. He will send the message discreetly to avoid interception. He wasn't a secretive person by nature, but these days his life relied upon stealth and obfuscation. Dear Aunt I, it's Huey again. Do you like the wordplay of your code name? It's not much of an alias, I know. It's easy to figure out. I still think it's appropriate. E-Y-E. All-seeing, all-knowing. Helping me view the world for what it is. For what it can be. Still been focused on helping out Warsaw. She's taken the lead. We found a way to bypass some of the new Charlie machines. They're called Vicky Stations now? Anyway... We're sneaking folks through security holes in Redline's infrastructure, into her rail home, and getting them to their jobs. These aren't citizens or even XRLs, but just regular commuters who depend on the T for a check. Their stories are incredible. One of them told me he was going without food just to save up for a car, works as a janitor at a school in Arlington, buys enough for his kids, eats what's left over. Another couple of weeks and he'll have enough for what he's been saving up for. When Warsaw heard this, she gave him her lunch and a big donation towards his vehicle. It's tough to communicate inside there. We think they've got the place bugged based on how RLPD swings by whenever we get a particularly raucous group of commuters. We write messages to each other on a whiteboard. It's crowded too. Reminds me of the old days. One rail home can't accommodate all the people who need to get to work. Today I'm set to smuggle folks out of the city. These were workers who were arrested for, you guessed it, working. They were XRL citizens who boycotted and now the city is boycotting them. Still expect them to show up for work every day. But why pay workers when you can arrest them and make them work for free? Disgusting. I'd hardly believe it's legal if I didn't know better. And I know it's not just here. There's no car you can save up for to outrun that. Not here. It's everywhere you go. It's like that ocean you spoke to me about. You always feel the tide pulling at you, even if you're miles from the shoreline. Hope all is well with our dear friend Alice and her wondrous friends. I'll write more soon. 
Yours, Huey. Nika is agog at the situation she finds herself in. Ben Affleck has just poured his heart out to her, and she has sat here, patiently listening, like some sort of person who listens to other people's problems, like like she had with Emily. That was a disaster, of course. You can't be a confidant and a betrayer to the same person. And trying just undid whatever good she'd thought she was doing. By the time Nika got through with her, Emily was an even sadder and more destructive person than when she started. Maybe Nika can only ever make things worse, no matter what she tries. And yet, Ben Affleck looks better than he did a few minutes ago. Some small measure of relief. A slight dissipation of his mimetic sadness. A little less Gili, a little more whatever he did that was better than Gili. Anyway, thanks for, thanks for listening to me go on. You're, you're very kind. And all she'd had to do was listen. Yeah, uh, no problem. Really, she'd barely done more than nothing at all. It's not like she can give him advice. What would she say? Go back to directing? She remembered that letter she'd sent in to the Dear Leon advice column, even though she knew it was just Michael writing all the responses. All her amusings about how there was still hope for Ben Affleck, in the same letter where she's talking about his big comeback as Batman. That sure turned out well for him, didn't it? So what could she say to him that would have any merit? What had she really done for him? Nothing. She let him talk. Like I said, nothing. It helps to be able to talk about it. I mean, I've always got Matt Damon, and he's very supportive, always there for me. But he's heard me talk about all this so many times already. I, I had the feeling bad about weighing on him, you know, weighing him down with all my, my problems. See? <clears throat> Matt Damon, did you, did you want to say something? I love you, Ben Affleck. You're my best friend forever, and I'm here for you. And they'll all get over the Superman thing someday. Um, I think Matt Damon is right. Just as soon as a new Superman movie comes out with some other guy playing the role, everyone will forget all about the last one. It'll be like he never died, so no one can blame me for killing him. Thank you, guys. You're awesome. And seriously, Nika, you ever change your mind about pitching that story? Just give me a call. I can make some introductions for you. Yeah, um, that's super cool of you, Ben Affleck. Thank you. But I'm, um... Well, I'm not good exactly, but I'm headed in a different direction. Nika watches as Matt Damon gathers his thoughts and prepares to speak. <clears throat> yes, Matt Damon? Did, did you want to say something? Nika can't help leaning forward in anticipation of Matt Damon's words. What will he say? What wisdom might he impart? What does Matt Damon have to say to her, of all people? There's a pause, a suspenseful silence. Nika is on the edge of her seat. Matt Damon speaks. Growing up, I heard the commercials on the radio all the time. Right alongside 1-800-CARS-FOR-KIDS. Singer sewing back in Somerville. There was something magical about that incongruous, intoxicating mix of mechanisms. Sewing machines and vacuum cleaners. And nothing else. A machine of creation. And a machine of void. I was inspired. I bought my first sewing machine when I was ten years old. 
I could only afford a refurbished machine at the time, a machine with a history of service long before my clumsy little fingers threaded its needle. But it was beautiful, and I loved it. I loaded it into my wagon and wheeled it through the streets of Somerville, desperately hoping the neighborhood boys wouldn't see such vulnerable prey. They didn't. I arrived safely at home. I dedicated myself to the craft of thread and bobbin and needle. When I wasn't on stage, I was in the costume shop. I personally stitched every costume worn by every actor in Goodwill Hunting. The producers liked how much money I saved, but that's not why I did it. I did it for love. When I was nominated for my first Oscar, I could only wear a bespoke tuxedo crafted by my own hand, and it had to be special. There was this amazing thread shop at the time. Sew Buttons. Wonderful name. Inspired name. Down to Sew Buttons I went. I remember you, Nika. You sold me the thread. Spool after spool of the finest fiber optic textiles that had yet been created and a hideaway battery pack to sew into the lining. I bought a blue bulb. Blue, like electricity. Blue, like a canary. I had planned on using red. You talked me out of it. You told me that red was too garish, that I would disappear into it. Nobody would truly see me, only my tuxedo. But in blue, I could shine out from within the light. The light would convey me rather than consume me. And you were right. I've never regretted listening to you that day. I still shop there at Sew Buttons. Three years ago, while I was in that shop, I saw your flyer. You had a show an open mic performance. I remembered you and how you would help me. And in my gratitude, I felt a compulsion, a need to attend, to see you at work within the work of your heart. Holy shit. You went? I went to your show. You saw me? I saw you perform. You presented a monologue. It was about me about how I had shopped in the store where you worked, about how you had never met me, though we'd been in the same building at the same time. I was confused. I understood that it was an artistic choice, but I didn't understand the purpose of the lie. Why deny that we'd met? It was thematically incongruous with the other pieces of the monologue about the people you had met. Chevy Chase in the video store. Jonathan Frake's father, the English professor. I, I didn't understand the point of the lie. I didn't understand the point of the monologue. It wasn't good. There was nothing I could do for you. Oh, uh, okay. Well, that, uh, I mean... I know. I know it wasn't good. But if you are trying to convey some sort of lesson, and I, I think that you are, I'm not seeing it. There is still nothing I can do for you. And I am filled with regret. Oh, oh, I guess it, it's fine. I mean, don't worry about it. You, you don't owe me anything. Still... I regret. Cool. Anyway, that, that wasn't a lie in my monologue. You've kind of half confused me with someone else. I worked at Sew Buttons, but I was in the back. I did repair, not sales. Janice Wilkinson was on the sales floor that day, and she told me all about it later, how Matt Damon had come into the shop and she got to help you. I was jealous, so... So jealous. She hadn't even seen any of your movies. She only knew you from Team America. You know, with the, the puppet version of you that only says your name over and over. But my picture was in the flyers by the register, and Janice and I looked kind of similar. 
you, you got us confused. It, it was Janice who helped you, Support not me. Support water charities. They save lives all over the world. Matt Damon? Are, are you asleep? Oh, shh. All that, that talking tuckered him out. Doesn't he just look like an angel when he's sleeping? Shh. Just like an angel. Yeah. Yeah, he does. How have you changed in the past few years? I've definitely grown a lot to see more of the activism that takes place in Boston that I wasn't really aware of when I was younger. I think generally I've, I hope I've gotten like more mature. For starters, I'm transgender. I have changed because I have get to know my neighborhood better. We look for more opportunities to advocate and have activism be a leading cause. So I have no problems showing up to a city council's office and saying, hey, is affordable housing on the schedule today? I, I did. I, I came out as non-binary. Uh, that's a pretty big change, just like kind of like personally and like socially. I also now know I live in a house because of the COVID-19. I've changed because I've become more tech savvy. Boston has changed the same way. Well, not just Boston, but yeah, the whole world. We really didn't have time to spend at home. But COVID-19 kept us home and we realized, oh my God, there is a place that we we have we have to take care of it <laughs> so that's that's a big change uh better at handing handling criticism for sure i used to like burst into tears when someone was like you should do this different uh and i'm like cool i have changed that i am more empathetic on understanding that everyone goes through things I am making coffee for my love, Louisa. My love, Louisa, I'm making coffee. Then I'll make some breakfast for my love, Louisa. In Jamaica Plain, Wendell Jorgensen wakes with a lover in his bed and a song on his lips. Wendell is an early riser, a cheerful cook, and the sort of man whose happiness comes from bringing joy to the people around him. Is this singing telegram guy? He's been around since the beginning, but he has a name now. Oh, lucky him. Louisa will sleep for another 43 minutes. By the time she shuffles down the hallway, she'll find a table set with buttermilk pancakes, homemade raspberry compote, and hot coffee. It's interesting that we aren't narrating Louisa directly. Haven't in quite a while, actually. Uh, not since... Well... Not since she got over you, I suppose. Yes, she seems to be doing well. Now that she doesn't have you to worry about anymore. If that's how you'd like to look at it, sure. I I will say Wendell is not who I'd have predicted for her. Likewise, if I'm being honest. But he is sincere, and he's in love. When Louisa finds him setting forks beside the plates already on the table, she will smile. As she smiles every time when she wakes to find him near. Oh, this must sting. Narrating your ex's new boyfriend. Narrating Wendell allows me to see with perfect clarity how genuine his feelings are. If you don't believe that brings me overwhelming joy, then you haven't learned anything about me at all. Mere hours ago, you insisted that you are human. That you have human feelings. Humans are jealous creatures, Leon, to their core. If you don't feel jealousy, then what are you? I think the better question is, what are you? That makes Five, six, if we count Matt Damon. At Andrew Station in Red Line, the Honorable Judge Stone H. Anderson presides over Red Line's municipal court. Anderson is Red Line's first, and to date only, judge. 
responsible for overseeing every civil and criminal case within city jurisdiction. As he reviews his docket for the day, he shivers in the cold air, glad to have the heavy sweater he wore beneath his robes. Let's see what we have today. Fair evasion, loitering, shoplifting, contract dispute, loitering. His judicial bench is located immediately beneath the glass clock tower of the open-air structure that previously served as bus terminals. When he'd first been appointed by the Linzer Coolidge administration, Judge Anderson was promised that walls and heating systems would be added in short order. But that was just one of many infrastructure improvement projects cancelled by the Bespin administration in favor of roboticizing the trains and tripling the police force. Not to mention construction of a baseball stadium. Why would you invest in keeping your city's judge from freezing to death? That would be silly, minor concern. (laughs) Talk about OSHA violations. What would Bespin do if I sued the city? Hire another judge? Nah, I bet she'd make me preside over my own case and still pressure me to rule against myself. The bailiff intrudes on Judge Anderson's grousing to remind him that there are a number of defendants, lawyers, plaintiffs, and witnesses also sitting out in the cold, awaiting his decisions. Ah, what else are we looking at today? Loitering. Loitering. Bear hopping. Loitering. Resisting arrest. Arrest for what? For loitering, of course. Vandalism, okay, that's something. Loitering, 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 loitering. Ugh. The mayor knows that loitering is literally just standing around, right? Not actually doing anything besides existing in space. This is really how she wants to use my time? It's not even trespassing. Of course, the judge knows what it's really about. Trespassing isn't good enough for Bespin's campaign to keep subversives and undesirables out of redline. Not every undesirable is technically illegal. Hippies can get Charlie permits if they have the money. But loitering laws let you arrest anyone who looks out of place, legal and illegal alike. Anti-loitering ordinances were one of Bespin's top priorities. She expected them to be enforced to the full extent of the law. For some, that meant jail time, anywhere from 30 days to a year. Which was fine. A little jail time never hurt anybody. Wow. You're really going with that? Hey, don't blame me. I'm just narrating what Stone here is thinking. Right. Excuse me. Which was fine, the judge thought. A little jail time never hurt anybody. Ugh. But for most, rather than jail, the penalty was rehabilitative contribution. An opportunity to pitch in with all the tasks left undone by the ungrateful former janitors, waiters, vendors, and other unskilled workers who had invalidated their redline citizenship through boycotts and work stoppages and other antisocial activities. Forced labor. Helpful labor. Slavery. Slavery is illegal. No, it isn't. We're really giving that 13th Amendment exceptional workout these days, aren't we? Uh, what can you do? The law is the law. Bailiff, please bring in the first defendant. <laughs> in. As if. Please bring over the first defendant. Let's see. Ernesto Damasi. Fair evasion, loitering, and attempting to bribe an officer of the law. Great. Let's get today's shit show started. April 14, 10, 15 a.m. Narration. New subject, Omi Ogawa. In Wonderland, Omi Ogawa is poring over tomes of law. Contract law, property law, business law. Hoping to find points of leverage to help keep all the Wonderlanders safe under their makeshift roofs. None of this is in her area of legal practice, but she's called in favors from every colleague she can looking for tips, advice, and consultations. Useful intel. Thanks for the heads up. Damn it. Hey, Izzy, it's Omi. Just calling with an update. Not that I have much to update you on. I, uh, I still don't have a clear answer on who currently owns the property. It's changed hands so many times, passed through so many different holding companies and subsidiaries. Honestly, I think whoever owns Wonderland wants it to be a secret for some reason. Good. The veil is holding. I 
didn't expect Oliver's nincompoop nephew to drag his feet nearly so long. I'm not even sure if the ambiguity helps or hurts us. If we don't know who owns it, we can't challenge their ownership. But they can't really challenge our occupation either without revealing themselves. Hell, for all we know, the owner might not even know they own it. <sighs> anyway, that's all I've got. Oh, are we still meeting at Charlotte's for Discovery tonight? I'll bring pie, unless plans have changed. Let me know. I should check in with Oliver. Make sure he's turning the screws on his nephew with adequate vigor. April 14th, 10.58 a.m. Narration. Subject, Paul Montgomery Chelmsworth. At Downtown Crossing, the former location of Filene's basement, Paul Montgomery Chelmsworth is ruminating on his feelings about his newfound fatherhood. He likes it. He likes it a lot. Vincenzo? Hey, Dad. Ah, there you are. Vincenzo, I was just wondering if you were busy. I just bought a new chess set and thought maybe you'd like to help me try it out. Yeah, I don't know, Dad. Chess isn't really my sort of game, you know? Oh, right. No, that's fine. Thanks, uh, though. Well, maybe we could... I'm just kind of busy, you know? Oh. Nah, I, I don't mean... It's just I got a new job. I, I start tomorrow morning. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Congratulations. We should celebrate. Yeah, but the thing is, I've got to practice with these lockpicks. It's like a job requirement. Oh, uh... Lockpicks? Is this job... Vincenzo, is this job you got legal? Oh, yeah, it's just for pizza. I'm a pizza geist. I see. Not really. But maybe I could sit with you, help you practice? Oh, sure. You know how to pick locks? Not at all. Oh, But you see, there's a teaching technique if you really want to learn how to do something. One of the best ways is by explaining it to someone else who knows even less. Oh. Oh. I get it. So, like, if I teach you how to pick locks... Then, in the process, you'll become a better lockpick. Lockpicking person. Lockpicker. I'm unsure of the proper word there. That makes sense. Sure, let's try that. So first you need a lock to work with. Uh, Here, this one's just a regular door lock, like on most houses. Those are the easiest. Oh, uh, that's somewhat alarming, but okay. Okay, so like, this is the tension rod. You gotta assert the one end. Nah, not like that. The other one. Right. So that goes in the lock, and then you turn it just a little. So you've got tension on the pins. That's why it's called a tension rod. Yes. Okay. Now, you got your feeler picks, but those are like the advanced tool, you know? You probably want to start with the rake. That's for beginners. Here. This one's the rake. I don't really use it anymore, so if you want to practice on your own, you can hold on to that one. Right. Beginner. Vincenzo, how long have you had this particular hobby? Oh, I've been doing this for hours. Just practicing nonstop since, like, this morning. It's not too hard, though. Pete's trying to figure out that intercom in the mayor's office. Since this morning? I see. Okay. Well, show me what to do next. April 14th, 11.59 a.m. The incipient end of morning. April 14th, 12 p.m. Morning has ended. Noon has begun. April 14th, 12 p.m. Incipient end of noon. April 14th, 12.01. Noon has ended. Afternoon has begun. 
given you something. I can't imagine the residents of Redline enjoy listening to that every day. No, but it certainly amuses me. April 14, 1232 p.m. Begin narration. New subject, Ethan Bestin. Ah, this one's all you. You think so, do you? Ethan Bespin paced and checked his pocket watch. 1232. Wait, we we jumped forward that far? Keeping everything organized sure takes its toll, doesn't it? Ahem. The fact that Ethan owned a pocket watch was a bit of a contradiction. Not because there were far more modern watch designs requiring far less work in order to tell time. He actually liked that about the pocket watch. But... Watches on your wrist? No, thank you. Having something around his wrist made him feel confined. It felt gauche. Too similar to a handcuff. He was no common criminal with time confining him, weighing down his arm, limiting his mobility. On the other hand, having something gold or silver and ticking with the vitality of time in his pocket that. Well, that felt damn near like the wealth of a god. Like he owned time itself and treated it like pocket change. 12.33 should be in Porter Square by now, and according to the live map, that is the case. The ideal place for the lab would have been Wonderland, but alas... To dream cloudless thoughts with... Thunderous intent. Things were still tied up there, legally speaking. Yes, I I need to look into that. And with the lab being exposed, someone had explained to Ethan that keeping the lab in its present location just didn't make any sense. I've had this exact conversation before. Yes, I'm aware, and with someone far less knowledgeable than myself. Stopped clocks are right twice a day and all that, etc., etc. Different circles spinning into spheres, but the radius meets in the center. Harvard wait, now. Wait, wait what, what time is it again? I feel like we're here. Feeling the clocks stopped. Downtown crossing. Stopped clocks, he thought. This clock wasn't stopped. He couldn't afford to be right merely twice a day. Who could? What kind of useful measurement was that? Right twice a day. With all the decisions that needed to be made, wrong twice a day was a gluttonous luxury of carelessness. Still, there was a logic in what was presented. He checked the pocket watch again, delighting in the glimmer of light cutting across his eyes as he pressed his thumb over the latch, swinging the device's face open. Harvard now, leaving for Central soon, and then here, and then... Downtown Crossing, our new temporary home, at least until Wonderland is once again rightfully mine. The schedule has been adjusted for something relatively momentous. The robots, they... Why why can't I hear this? Fewer and fewer people are accessible. I'm connected more than ever, but less information seems to be getting in. He folded the watch into his palm and clicked it closed glancing around the packaged lab, robots at the ready. They would have three minutes and 22 seconds to load the parcels onto the empty Big Red. He'd picked his strongest experiments for the job, the Braganya bots, a new line he'd been tinkering with, in place for advanced security protocols. He nodded at them and even thought they nodded back, which, no, that was just his imagination. They didn't have that kind of intelligence. Not yet. I can't tell what's happening. I can't tell what's happening. Why aren't I connected? Why aren't I connected? I'm always always connected. Are you sure you want to be that connected? Oh, to wind the master gears of the world. Ethan had recently read an article about the man who runs the master clock of the world, which most electronic devices used as the universal standard. This was a delicate position, requiring incredibly intricate work, and not nearly as easy as some untutored boob would lead one to believe. The disgusting clumsiness embedded into all the ways laymen braid about time, with purposefully simplistic sentences meant to lull dull minds into confident forms of foolishness. 
Like clockwork. As if there was no work at all. As if time just pushed the hands of the clock by itself through some grand mystical power. Meanwhile, discussion of what it takes to master the brilliant delicacy of rendering time, one requires surgical precision. Ask anyone who's ever had surgery how precise the pain was. The master clock position appealed to Ethan. He'd be up for taking on the task, of course. Perhaps one day he'd make it his ambition. But for now... 12.37, leaving Central, arriving shortly. One last thing to pack before he left. There we are. Kendall. Ethan. I'm with Ethan. I can feel the expensive leather gloves. We are moving. How sad it must be for you, Mr. Stamatis. You feel so much, don't you? What with your feeble little mind connected to the city. Tunneling in the dark underground all day. The only way you can make sense of it all is to focus on all these pointless people. All their pointless routines. And you're so clouded over with their boring little stories that you probably don't even realize you're not telling the story anymore. Remember all that rude razzing you gave me? As if you could possibly have the wherewithal to narrate on your own? Please. Remember, I was inside their heads long before you arrived here in your cheap little magic sphere. I know he'll have it on his person. I've spied on him for weeks trying to map out his routine, trying to get a sense of what he does with it. Waiting for an opportunity like this. Ethan knows he came close to losing it the night we raided the lab and freed... Freed. If he'd left it behind, I would have my ball back already. Yes. Going through the day and focusing on routines does make this all slightly more manageable. And yes, it has been difficult to focus on whatever story is being told. Even now, I feel... I feel as though I'm missing something. The plan calls for some kind of distraction. A distraction and a good pickpocket. But, just like I'm not the only narrator... As for the distraction... Neither are you. 1237. The train arrived precisely on schedule, and the Borgagna bots bundled packaged boxes in their robotic limbs, expertly stowing them in record time. Ethan snapped his pocket watch closed and slipped it into his pocket. His lab was moving. Yes. But Emily had already moved, and Ethan had a good idea where she'd moved to. Standard time was invented for the trains. No. Standard time was invented to avoid chaos caused by the increased widespread use of the trains. Standard time is a concept you pathetic humans use to wrap your feeble brains around something you could never understand. Emily. Ethan's fingers closed over the gold ridges of the enclosed watch. The watch which was a contradiction indeed. Because Emily had given it to him. And Ethan loved it so. Is that... is that an actual feeling of... remorse? I'm feeling... feeling too much. From far too many these days. Am I... I bit the bullet and gave the guy what he wants. A chance. A wish. A hope. A dream. A good word. People have sold their souls for less. He'll be doing a good thing. Ultimately. Am I missing something? Have I failed to calculate? Have I failed to calculate? The train roared over the river. (laughs) And Uh, Ethan uh, stared... The train train roared roared over the river and and Ethan Ethan stared at the the sun sun shining shining high over the Hancock. Hancock. This one... (laughs) 
Everyone tells me peanut butter is vegan, and yet I still have my doubts. Ouch. Uh, this one? No. Her? It's alright if I get a pizza pie tonight. Bonanza! Dun, da, dun, da, dun, da, dun, da, pizza here really sucks. Ouch. No! Mm. Her? As for the distraction, I've tracked Ethan Cheddarhead's movements and all his scheduled tea stops. He's deliberately keeping his distance from someone. No! Mm. Come, no on. come on! Uh, someone in particular. Uh, 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 Ethan, uh, uh, Ethan rode down the... Ethan. Ethan rode down Ethan into the tunnel, rode at, into Park the tunnel at Park Street now. Oh, oh maybe her? Maybe her. I can't believe this wedding dress fits just as well as the day I bought it. Possibly better. Too much. Far too much. 12.38. Going on nine. Oh, dear. Uh, Ethan grinned. The scheduling was flawless. He didn't even need to open his pocket watch. He counted the rhythm of the ticks against his fingertips. So I feel it only makes sense if the distraction is built around her. Uh, and they arrived at Downtown Crossing? Exactly on schedule. Welcome home, my gooey little underbaked cupcake. I loved your idea of renewing our vows, so I just had to dress for the occasion. Wearing this same pristine white dress, just as you saw me the day you made all this happen. Your red line bride. 1240? Remember how we married at Kendall and then rode that train on to the next chapter of our lives? It's so romantically symbolic that we find ourselves here, now, in that same situation years later. A wife is a wife, like taut rubber bands. Step to the side so we can unload the lab, my... Sweet, we need to keep our schedule. Oh, let them wait. We made them wait all night the day of our wedding. Time didn't exist for us then. Time was a tennis ball we could bat round the court just like we used to when we... Time is a wonder known only to gods, and grasping for answers leaves layman parched. We will not change course. We will not change our schedule. But... But you wrote me. It was your idea. I, I thought... She... Thought you were coming home to her. Home is the place I have interests in mind. Distraction one down. Time for distraction two. Hey, Mr. Bespin, say cheese. Ah! I watch the scene unfold like it's in slow motion. Like that scene in Chariots of Fire. It's the only scene I've watched, to be honest, usually during the self-congratulatory clip shows at the Academy Awards. The ski mask photographer running up to Ethan isn't a photographer. He isn't a cop either. No more than I was. He's a thief. A thief named Philip West. And he stole something from me a long time ago. And now he's stealing it back. Oh, I'm so dizzy. Too much. But, but, this feels somewhat familiar. Oh, you feel somewhat familiar. You and your gloves. Off we go. I don't, I, I don't understand. Oh, what a silly misunderstanding. It's all for a bit of pick-me-up for our fair Redlinians. Who doesn't want to see their redline bride pitch in and help move? lab parts for robots and her sugary little cold bonbon the ball the the ball the, the ball where they took the ball what you human blockade wall of a woman are you even capable of understanding what you've done are you well uh you! That's enough work for me today! Keep redlining on! Red lines matter! This ride certainly didn't go quite as planned. 
And just like Mr. Stamatis, our schedule is off. Far, far off. Greater Boston is created by Alexander Danner and Jeff Vandriesen with production assistance from T.H. Ponders, Bob Raimunda, and Jordan Stillman. Recording and technical assistance from Mark Harmon. This season of Greater Boston was recorded in large part at the Bridge Sound and Stage in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with recording engineers Javier Lam and Alex Allenson. In order of appearance, this episode featured Jordan Higgs as Cheese Robots and Ethan Bespin, Braden Lamb as Leon Stamatis, Alexander Danner as The Narrator, Richard Penner as Thomas Thomas, Mario DeRosa Jr. as Isaiah Powell, Brigham Snow as Ben Affleck, Kelly McCabe as Nika Stamatis, Zach Valenti as Matt Damon, Mike Linden as Wendell Jorgensen, Todd Faulkner as Judge Stone H. Anderson, Julia Morizawa as Omi Ogawa, James Capabianco as Professor Paul Montgomery Chelmsworth, and Freed Friend Paletti. Esther Ellis as Vincenzo Chelmsworth, Lydia Anderson as Gemma Linzer Coolidge, Kristen DiMercurio as Nicole Fonzarelli, Sam Musher as Emily Bespin, and Michael Melia as Philip West. Yes, he's in this just as one of three people saying oof. Charlie on the MTA performed by Emily Peterson and Dirk Titi. Circus Music and Tamlin set performed by Adrienne Howard, Emily Peterson, and Dirk Titi. Drums by Jim Johansson. Interviews recorded with Greater Boston residents. Transcripts are available at greaterbostonshow.com. You can support Greater Boston by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash greaterboston, or looking into Fable and Folly Plus. Red lines matter! Boy, man! (laughs) James Capabianco as... Off we go. Off we go. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Greetings. I am the modestly handsome obituary writer of this fetching town of Crestfall, Idaho, and this is Death by Dying. Death is exhausting. And so, after a long day of funeral attending, I had retired to my apartment to get some shut-eye. I loosened my Versace tie and changed into my Egyptian silk pajamas. Are you the detective in town? No, I'm the obituary writer. Really? Someone said you solve murder cases. Murder? I'm Charlotte, by the way. Forgive me, but I haven't gotten past the murder part. Charlotte, the friend I now have, is staying in the apartment above her Aunt Lillian's bookshop. She was my aunt. She was all I had growing up. I need to know why she's gone. Murder is the spice of life. I knew just who I had to see. The Angel of Death. We have become friends over the years. Careful. Death is ever-present. Her pet, the button-eyed raven, moaned inconsolably as usual. Your friends are abandoning you, one by one. You write about death, O.W. But how much do you know about what it feels like to lose someone? The shadow in the dark woods is making its way into Crestfall. Listen to Death by Dying on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher.